Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We welcome you to our Bible class on Sunday mornings here. Uh, we welcome, first of all, those who are in our gymnasium here this morning with us, personally here with us, face-to-face. -face. Uh, we welcome those in the St. Louis area who are listening on KFUO 850 AM, and we welcome our worldwide listeners on KFUO.org. Just an announcement up front, uh, we're going to switch, uh, switch gears here a little bit. In the next six weeks, uh, ordinarily, as regular listeners know, we uh, have been looking at the scripture lessons that are assigned for the coming Sunday, or next Sunday, uh, in this class for quite some time now. We're going to take a little bit of a break from that, uh, not only today, but for five weeks to follow today. And we're going to be looking at the six chief parts of the Christian faith. And this is intended, uh, well, really a couple things. First of all, uh, if any are interested in the teachings of the Lutheran Church, and specifically our congregation here, in terms of what we believe, teach, and confess uh, for possible membership in the future, uh, that is one aspect of this class, or one uh, dimension, I guess you would say, of this class. Uh, adult confirmation afterward is not mandatory. It's not required at all. There's no obligation whatsoever. Uh, but however, if at the end of this class, if someone is interested in adult confirmation, that certainly is a possibility, and we would, would welcome that opportunity. Second, it's a good opportunity for lifelong Lutherans to review uh, some of the teachings uh, of our church. And uh, I don't know, some, sometime you may, you may just hear something you didn't, you didn't uh, know before. Um, I also think um, in teaching adult instruction class in general, I really enjoy it because when you're a little bit older, uh, a few more years of living under your belt, you might think, uh, definitely think of questions that you never would have occurred to you uh, when you're at that junior confirmation age, you know, around 12 to 14. Uh, your, your framework, your orientation is just a little bit different now uh, as an adult. So I really enjoy the class uh, itself, teaching it on a regular basis. Ordinarily, we've been teaching these on Tuesday nights for two hours. We're going to be going to just six Sundays here. We did six weeks of Tuesday nights, but normally it's two hours. We got one hour here on Sunday. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll economize a little bit. I want to just announce for those of you that are here, there are Bibles over there, and also there are two different sheets. One of them is a stapled set that says the What We Believe class, and there's another single sheet on both sides that's uh, the Ten Commandments and Explanations from Luther's Small Catechism. So if you want to pick up, uh, a set of those each, that will be helpful for you as we go through the class, and you'll be able to follow along a lot easier. So one is a stapled set, uh, says what we believe, class on the top, and the next one is Luther's Small Catechism, the Ten Commandments and Explanations from Luther's Small Catechism. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. All right, I think that's all in the way of uh, announcements and housekeeping matters to take care of. So let's begin with a word of prayer then as we begin our study together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to come before you with thanksgiving and praise for all of your blessings given to us in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life and death and resurrection once again. We thank you that through him our sins are completely taken away and we have everlasting life in your presence and with one another. We thank you also for your word, the scriptures to us. We thank you for this opportunity and in the weeks ahead to study that word and to uh, continue to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of that word and also of your will for us as your children here on this earth. We pray you bless us then, not only in, these, uh, in this hour to come, but in the, in the weeks that we meet in the future. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our only Savior. Amen. All right, very good. Um, we're going to start on the sheet, first of all, that says the What We Believe class, and uh, the one that's stapled, the stapled set together. And one of the big, we're going we're to talk about the Ten Commandments today, uh, but before we even do that, I want to talk a little bit about the two main teachings that we have in the Bible. Now, if we were to say, for example, what are the two main parts or the two main divisions of the Bible, we would say it's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I want to make very clear for those who are here that we do believe 
that the scriptures are what we call the inspired and inerrant word of God. In other words, we believe that the scriptures are God-breathed. Uh, he, he used uh, human authors to write the words, and you can see that when you read uh, the difference between, let's say, uh, John's gospel and one of Paul's letters. So he used human authors, but that process of inspiration, we believe, as the scriptures say, allowed the words that God wanted to have recorded, recorded. Okay? So we believe when we are reading the scriptures, we are not just reading, for example, if we're reading one of Paul's letters, we're not just reading Paul's opinions or his thoughts on some things. We're actually reading what God inspired through Paul to write. And so from that perspective, we would say the Bible is different than any other book that you will pick up and read. So for those who are here, we just want you to know that right up front, that we do believe that all of the scriptures, every single part, are divinely inspired and as a result are inerrant, and that they alone uh, would be what should guide us in terms of determining what we believe, what we teach, what we preach. Uh, it better be from the scriptures. If not, uh, we need to correct it. We need correction. And in this class also, uh, we should be able to show you from the scriptures why we believe what we believe, okay? But I just wanted to say that right up front. Now, back to the two main teachings in the Bible, they are law and gospel. Law and gospel. Those are the two main teachings. And many, many different Bible passages can be categorized as either law on the one side or gospel on the other. A whole lot of other passages, of course, are just factual information or uh, historical data. But again, when it comes to teachings, the two main teachings, law and gospel. As it says there on the sheet, the law tells us what we should do or should not do, what we must do or must not do. So when you're reading a passage and it sounds to you like it's telling you something you should do or should not do or must do or must not do, that's going to be law. If you're reading a passage and it says to you what God has done for you through Jesus Christ especially, that's gospel. That's the good news of what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. Okay? And we'll talk about the uses of the law here in just a moment. But just to clarify again, law tells us what we should or should not, must or must not do. Gospel tells us what God has done for us. Okay? So the main, main, main uh, difference, I guess you'd say, uh, in those. Now, going down again on that stapled sheet in the front, we would say that the law, now just talking about law now, not gospel, just law, but that the law has three main uses or three main purposes in our world today. And that, first of all, the law, we say the first use of the law is as a curb. And we say that's the societal use of the law. In other words, our laws, for the most part anyway, uh, in our society and in our culture, have their origin in the law of God. So it is wrong, for example, to kill and to steal and to lie and to cheat and so on. That's foundation for that is God's law that was given to us. And so we say this is the societal use of the law, and we say it's a curb. Now let's say, let me demonstrate why we call it a curb. If I'm going down, let's say I'm going down um, a side street, and I start to veer off to the side in my car, what if I'm, assuming I'm not going 100 miles an hour, uh, what happens when I bump into the curb? What does it do? Bumps me back, right? Puts me back on track again, or on, on the straight and narrow again. We would say that's what God's law does for us as a society. That if we're starting to veer off, it bumps us back, keeps us on the right track or on the, on the straight and narrow or whatever, you know, whatever term you want to use. I, uh, now, I was thinking about this this morning. You know, now, when you go down, like if I go down 270 and I'm starting to veer off to the side, I, there's no curb there, but what do I hear immediately? Right? 
So maybe we should call the first use now the use. I don't know, but <laughs> it's, uh, that's, that's the idea. And just think, I mean, our society, our laws, our, our, our uh, uh, society would, would almost be chaos if we didn't have that sort of grounding, wouldn't it? I mean, when you stop and think about it, it'd be like the, the uh, survival of the fittest law, the jungle, whatever you want to say. Uh, so that's the first use of God's law, and that applies to society or to all people. Then next we've got, so that's the curb, next we've got the mirror. And this is the use of God's law that shows me my sin. So when we wake up in the morning and walk into the bathroom, turn the light on, and look in the mirror, there we are, right? Exactly as we are. And we would say God's law, that's the second use of it, and frankly, this is its main use. It shows us our sin. So when I read passages, and we're going we're to have some examples coming up here in just a minute, but when I read passages that say, for example, <clears throat> all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what does that say to me? I have sinned, right? I'm, I'm included in all, right? Or you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What does that do for me? I, I am not perfect, right? I know you all agree that. <laughs> I am not perfect. So it is showing me my sin, right? And there are plenty of other passages that we, and we'll look at some coming up. But that is the, uh, the use of the law that is probably the main focal point for God's law. It's to point out to me that I am a sinner and I need a savior. In spite of what I might think about myself and what's right and what's wrong and how good I am, relatively speaking, to other people, God's law comes to me and says, no, you're not good enough. And in fact, the good news then we'll see coming up is that you don't have to be because Christ was in your place, right? So, but that's, we're talking about the law here, and that again is the main use of the law. Mirror shows us our sin. Then finally, there's a third use of the law that is called a guide for us. And this is the Christian use of the law. And that is simply stated is, after I have been called to faith in Jesus Christ, and I trust and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of my sin, now I want to live a life that's pleasing in the sight of God. I want to live a God-pleasing life. Not so that I can try, you know, in some uh, futile effort to earn his love and forgiveness, but because I've already received his love and goodness and forgiveness, now I want to live a life that's pleasing. Well, where do I go to find where that pleasing life is? I go back to his word, the scriptures, and his law tells me, okay? So, for example, the early, the early Christians, in, uh, you know, right after Christ ascends into heaven, one big question they had is, well, is it God-pleasing that we obey the government or not? And in fact, uh, which government were they talking about back at that time? The Romans, of all things. So that's a big question. So as a Christian now, is it God-pleasing that I follow and obey the government? And Paul writes in Romans 13, yes, you do. In fact, we may look at that a little bit later on. Uh, we'll get into uh, killing and, and why soldiers and police are allowed to do that and so on. But uh, So that's just one example of, of many, many different things. So I look at God's word now and I say, okay, God's word helps guide me as a Christian now. So those are the three uses of the law. The societal use, which is the curb, keeps our society you know, on, a, on a hopefully a good uh, trajectory. Second, big use, shows me my sin. And then third use, as a Christian, helps me see what is actually pleasing now in the sight of God after he has called me to faith, okay? So those, again, you'll hear Lutherans talking about the three uses of the law. That's what we're talking about, okay? Those are the uses that, that we are talking about. Another way um, uh, to think about this is if you think of the old SOS message, right? So the law shows our sin, 
The gospel shows our Savior, if that's an easier way to remember it, almost like an SOS message. The law shows our sin, the gospel shows our Savior, okay? Um, now, you'll hear in Lutheran sermons, let me ask you this, as Christians, do we still need to hear the law? Do we still need to hear what we should and should not do? And that, Yes, and you will hear, you should hear, in every sermon, I'll just speak for us here, but in, in most every Lutheran church, I think, you will hear both law and gospel. Why do we still need to hear law? Because unfortunately, we still what? We still sin, right? Wouldn't it be great if when we were, uh, when we were called to Christ, if our sinful nature was completely wiped out? I mean, that would be, just think what life would be like. But unfortunately, we still drag it around with us, and it still rears its ugly head. So we still need to hear law, and hopefully you do in sermons here, but obviously we still uh, very much need to hear the gospel, don't we? And what, what Jesus has done for us. Now let me ask you this, as Lutherans, which of those two should predominate? Should the law predominate or should the gospel predominate? Gospel, the gospel, yeah. And so... You don't, uh, you know, if you're, if you're the preacher up there preaching, you don't dig a 50-foot hole of law and then just throw in 10 feet of gospel uh, and come up 40 feet short. Uh, so the gospel should always predominate, okay? Um, so you should be, you know, kind of be listening uh, as you listen to sermons here that you should hear statements that are both law statements and very much uh, hear gospel also, the good news of Jesus Christ, forgiveness, eternal life, things of that nature uh, should be predominating, okay? All right, uh, let's, let's take a look. I've got some examples on your uh, uh, stapled sheets there. Let's take a look at those, and you tell me, is this law or gospel? I think I already mentioned the first one, so you've got a head start here. Romans 323. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That would be law, right? So I look at that. Again, I look at that. I say, huh, I'm one of all. I can't say I'm not one of all. That means I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Regardless of what I may think about myself again, you know, God's word tells me something different, okay? Next one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Gospel, right? In fact, that verse is sometimes referred to as the gospel in a nutshell. You know, it's sort of a short, succinct summary of the gospel. And notice how there, it is what God has done for us. Notice we're not being asked to do anything. We're not having our sin identified there. It's what God has done for us. All right, next one. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Law or gospel? Law, yeah. Because what? I look at that and I say, I'm not perfect, right? And I, I mentioned that one before as well. So that shows me my sin. That's like looking in the mirror of God's law and I see, huh, I got a long way to go before being perfect. I guess I need a Savior, right? Uh, next one, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What do you think about that one? Is that law or gospel? That'd be gospel. Yeah, notice there, it's, in fact, it even hints at it when it says this is not your own doing, right? It's not something that we do. And it's, notice again how it emphasizes what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. And again, that would be just great gospel right there. Okay? It's not our own doing. Uh, let's go to John 13, 34. And this is Jesus speaking here. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That would be law, right? Even though, it, even though it's coming from Jesus' lips, that's law. And let me ask you, this, would be a, this is a real uh, extra credit question. Which use of the law would that be? When Jesus says to his disciples, who are already Christians, 
This is what I want you to do. Love one another as I have loved you. What, what use? First use, second use, third use. Third use of the law, and because he's telling them something that is pleasing in his sight. Now, I also could hear that, though, as second use of the law, couldn't I? Because if I hear Jesus say that, and I think to myself, huh, well, I sure didn't do that this morning. I, uh, you know, I had a smart remark for somebody, uh, you know, that, that, so sometimes the law can function in more than one way. In other words, I agree with you that on the surface, it is third use of the law. He is he's showing them something as Christians that's pleasing in his sight. However, I may hear that, and it may cause me to, again, to think about something I just said or something maybe I could have helped somebody and I didn't, right? I, I stopped short of helping them, and I think to myself, huh, boy, I already failed at that this morning. And so that would hit me as second use of the law, okay? So it's, this, this whole thing is kind of interesting to, to work through and, and the way things can, can be applied in our own lives. Um, now, let's look at these statements. You might hear something like this in a sermon, for example. Uh, uh, tell me whether it's the law or gospel. Your sins are now separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Your sins are separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Would that be law or gospel? Gospel. In fact, that's a quote from a psalm, actually. But notice it's telling me, again, my sins are uh, forgiven, and, and they're, in fact, I, they're as far away from me as they can be right now, right? So that's, that's the good news of the gospel, what God has done for me through Christ. Uh, next one. God has promised never to leave you or forsake you. Gospel, yeah. Again, not anything we're asked to do, uh, not showing us our sin, but rather telling us, what God does for us. All right, this next one I think is pretty obvious. We gossip about one another and ruin one another's reputation as if it doesn't matter. That'd be law. Yeah, that would definitely be law. And uh, we may think to ourselves, hmm, you know, I think, uh, hear that, and I think back to what I said yesterday in that conversation about somebody, and that convicts me of my sin, doesn't it? It shows me my sin. All right, uh, next one. As a baptized child of God... Don't follow the false gods of this world. They can only let you down in the end. Law or gospel. Don't follow the false gods of this world. Law. And which use? As a baptized child of God, third use, right? As a baptized child of God. So I'm a Christian, and now this is telling me what is pleasing in the sight of God. Could that hit me as second use of law? I think to myself, right, maybe, I'm, maybe I've made a, well, we're, let's say that we're going to get into the first commandment. We'll talk about that. But that could hit me as, first, as a second use. It could show me my sin if I have made something else a God in my life, right? And so that, again, these things can, you know, these statements can function in more than one way, many times uh, overlapping between second and third use of law, depending on, our own reflection upon that, okay? All right. Now, just when you think we've got <clears throat> as, as many categories and as many different aspects of sin that uh, you can, can think of, let me just tell you very quickly uh, about several categories here, and you can, can write them in. There is a sinful condition that we are all conceived and born in, and if we had more time, we would look at Psalm 51, for example, where David writes, "In sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, we could look at uh, Philippians chapter 1, where Paul talks about we are by nature children of wrath. What's that type of sin, that condition that we're all born with? What kind of sin is that called? Anybody know? Original sin. Yeah, it's a huge category called original sin. There's nothing I can do to avoid it. It is like a... Um, a a, a, a disease that I'm born with, I guess you could say, and it's, it, it comes in the fact that I am conceived and born sinful, okay? So, let me just point out, there are some churches today that might teach something along the lines of, well, uh, all the way to the extreme, I guess, uh, would teach that we are, we are conceived and born basically good, that we are born spiritually positive toward God, and that uh, there's nothing 
uh, bad or in need of any correction in us when we are conceived and born. That would be kind of a ext- more extreme position. But there are other churches that might teach something along the lines of, well, you know, we're sort of born just a little off-center. We just need a little shove to the, in the right direction and a little course correction maybe. And again, just so you know, uh, Lutherans have always maintained that, no, we are conceived and born totally in sin, called original sin. Uh, frankly, we are uh, in agreement uh, with all the Reformed churches on that. We are in agreement with the Roman Catholic Church on that, that we are born, conceived and born in a sinful state and cannot get ourselves out of it. We can't help ourselves out of it. Okay? So that's original sin. Then, just to go down a little bit the category, there are sins, we would say, that are sins of commission and sins of omission. Now, a sin of commission is a sin that I actually, as, as the name would say, I actually commit this sin. It's something that I do. I, I uh, steal, I lie, I gossip. That's a sin of commission, that I, I've committed that sin. There's also a sin, we, a category of sin, we say are sins of omission. Sins of omission. And that is when I could have done something to help somebody, and what? I, I don't, I think I'll, you know, halftime show's coming on, I think I'll stay here and watch the game. And so, so true or false, you can sin by doing nothing. True, yeah. You know, your neighbor is in need, and for whatever reason, you simply don't help. Okay? And uh, now, don't worry, we're going to get some good news here in just a minute. But uh, this is, I just wanted to show you that this is how thoroughly the Bible speaks about sin. Uh, there are some today, again, who don't seem to feel that sin is important or that it's important to God or that, frankly, we should even be talking about it. But that's not what we see in the Scriptures. In fact, we see the Scriptures very much concerned with sin, and that's exactly why Christ came into this world. I mean, if sin were no big deal, does God send his son into this world and and his son go through all that he did on the cross and even before the cross? I don't think so if it's not that big a deal anyway. So it really is a big deal, and that's why you will hear us preaching about it. That's why you'll hear us teaching about it. Um, and along with sin, I'll just say this, that we as a church, uh, again from the Scriptures, uh, do believe that there is a literal place called hell. It will be an eternal existence uh, apart from uh, the loving uh, mercy and presence of God. We do believe there is a literal person called the devil or Satan who is uh, absolutely diametrically opposed to any godly purpose or will in this world. And I always say that in these classes because, again, you will find some churches out there, uh, and if you take a poll of Americans, uh, that it seems like less and less they are believing in an actual devil in an actual place called hell, well, we take both very seriously in this church because the Bible takes both very seriously. I always say that when, you know, when Christ returns, he's not going to be taking a poll to find out uh, what's true and what's not. He's given us his word, and that's what we base what we believe on. Okay? So regardless of what Americans are thinking one way or the other, uh, the Bible takes these things very seriously. Okay? So those are the, the types of sin, original sin, and actual sin, sins that we act, and then the actual sins, sins of omission, uh, sins of commission, and sins of omission. Okay? Now, let me stop here. I'm going to take a breath. <laughs> any questions so far or any comments so far? We've, all we've looked at so far is law and gospel and the types of sin. So any questions or anything uh, you want me to say any more about? Jim? Okay, all right. The uh, question was dealing with, I think, what we normally think of as, as ranks of sin, you know. 
Uh, are some sins more serious than others? That's a great question. In the sight of God, first of all, there are a couple of ways to talk about this. In the sight of God, any sin makes one unacceptable in the sight of God. You know, in the book of James, it says if we are guilty of breaking just one part of God's law, we are guilty of breaking all of it. So there's, on the one hand, you can say, and you'll hear people say this, a sin is a sin is a sin, right? And, and that's absolutely true. On the other hand, I say sins are not all equal in terms of the damage they do. You know, in, in, in society, for example, I mean, I, I think we would agree that, that uh, someone telling a lie is not quite as serious in terms of its impact as somebody shooting somebody else, right? Killing somebody else. So on the one hand, yes, it's not that there is any one sin that is, you know, somehow God turns, turns his head the other way, and uh, only for certain sins he's concerned. All sins make us unworthy in the sight of God. But again, uh, there are certain sins that carry a, you might say, a more serious um, uh, impact uh, in, in the lives of people. Okay? And while we're on that, we better talk about what's the only one unforgivable sin. People sometimes get worried that, have I committed the unforgivable sin, Pastor? Yeah, it is the, typically we would refer to it as the sin of unbelief or the rejection, <clears throat> rejection of the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that is, if your sins are forgiven by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, by definition, right, your sins, you're on your own, right, if you're not trusting in Christ. So that is the only unforgivable sin. And sometimes um, I've had people who have committed, you know, a very serious offense and, and they're concerned, Pastor, is this the un did I commit the unforgivable sin? And I always say, if you're even asking that question, you probably have not. If you are concerned that you have, you probably have not. And then the next question is, are you, do you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of even that sin and if the answer is in the affirmative, then of course not. You have not forgiven, uh, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. Okay? Good, great question, Jim. Anybody else? Question before we move on. All right. So let's cover 10 commandments in 28 minutes. <laughs> this is like, this is uh, going to be drinking of a fire uh, hose here. Um, now, the 10 commandments, as I've got down there, we, we just don't have the time. If you've seen the, uh, the movie, uh, you may have a little background in this, but uh, God's people are out in the wilderness at this point. They have been uh, released from their slavery in Egypt. They are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses, the, the leader of God's people, God uh, chose him to lead his people out of their captivity. Moses is the one who goes up uh, and receives the Ten Commandments from God. And we, won't, we don't have time, unfortunately, to go through the, you know, what happened when, they went up, uh, when he went up there and was up there for a long time. God's people uh, grow uh, impatient. They make a golden calf, fall down and worship it, and say, this is, this is your God, O people of Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, Moses comes back down. A long story. But there's a, there's a rebuke of God's people at that point. And then finally, then Moses does receive again these ten words, or these ten commandments. You will find these in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, and in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, I believe it is. I should have checked that before I came. Uh, I believe it's Deuteronomy 8, but definitely Exodus 20. I'm sure on that one. Uh, it's not sure on the chapter on Deuteronomy, but I think it is 8. Now, we, we divide the commandments into two groups. There's the first table of the law, which is commandments 1 through 3, okay? And that table of the law deals with our relationship with God, okay? So that I have no other gods before him, I don't use his name in vain, and I remember his Sabbath day to keep, him, to keep it holy. Those first three, we say, are in the first table of the law, and they govern our life when it comes to our relationship with God, right? And so as Christians now, I could look at those three commandments and say, What's, what does God want me to do? What is pleasing in the sight of God in my relationship with him, right? That I don't have any other gods besides him, 
that I don't use his name needlessly, uh, carelessly, and that I remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, the next, the, the remaining commandments, 4 through 10, we would say are obviously the second table of the law, and they deal with our relationship with other people, with our neighbors, right? So I know that I should, when dealing with other people, honor my father and my mother, not kill anybody, not uh, commit adultery, not uh, steal, not bear false witness, not covet my neighbor's house, and not covet my neighbor's wife, manservant, maidservant, cattle, ox, or anything that is thy neighbor's, right? So these commandments tell me how I, what, what's pleasing in the sight of God with respect to how I live with my neighbor or over and against my neighbor. And those can also be second use of the law to me if I have violated some of those and, and hear them, okay? Now, let's go into this. Uh, first of all, if you look on your single sheet now, that is not the stapled one, but the other one, where we've got Luther's small catechism. And this, these, uh, Luther did not write the commandments, obviously, but Luther wrote the explanations. Luther wrote this small catechism in the year 1529 because when he went around and toured some of the churches in 1528, he was devastated by what he saw. He saw clergy who were ignorant and lazy, who didn't know what in the world the Christian faith was, couldn't recite the Apostles' Creed, couldn't recite the Lord's Prayer. Uh, one pastor had lost his Bible in a fire a couple years earlier and just never bothered to replace it. And Luther was appalled. Anytime, anytime I hear people say today, oh, the church is in such bad shape, I say, not compared to 1528, it's not, not that bad. Uh, so Luther writes the small catechism in 1529. He also wrote the large catechism in 1529. But the small catechism was intended by Luther not to be used as we're using it here, but to be used at home for parents to teach their children. And the first editions that came out, Luther would have been a media uh, rock star today because he used illustrations and actually had posters, uh, the small catechism. And people would put these on the walls of their homes so that when they would walk by, they would be reading and seeing the small catechism daily in their lives. It was amazing what Luther did. And so, as I say, the commandment part is what God says in Exodus 20. The explanation is what Luther says, the what does this mean part. Okay, so all that to say, first commandment on the single sheet, you shall have no other gods. That's what God says. Now, Luther, what does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Okay? Fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So, as I've got down back on the stapled sheet now, when we're talking about fearing God, we're not necessarily talking there about how we're quaking in our boots because God is going to uh, condemn us or God is going to uh, somehow harm us or, or be mean to us. Uh, no, it's more of a reverent respect, uh, kind of like I hope you have or had for your parents. There, there is a certain sense in that you know, you do respect his power as the, as the all-powerful, almighty God who created everything around us, but that fearing is more of a reverence or a respect. Again, hopefully the way parents would have for, uh, children would have for their parents. Uh, love, fear, love God is putting him first, always in our lives, and trusting, obviously, is relying on him, depending on him, having confidence in him, as our God. So that's what that commandment means, to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. It is the very first commandment. And when you stop and think about it, whenever I break any of the other commandments, which commandment have I first broken before I've broken any other commandment? First commandment. Because who have I made a God instead of God himself and what he says? Me. I know God's word says, I don't care. I'm doing this anyway. Right? So if we could keep the first commandment perfectly, 
uh, we, we, the other ones would kind of fall in line, wouldn't they? Unfortunately, we cannot. What are some things today that people make into gods? They're not actually gods. But what are some things today that people can fear, love, and trust more than the one true God? Money. Yep. Size of your bank account, right? That's, that's what I trust in. What else? Another person? Government. Uh, I've, self? Yeah, that's, that's a good one, too. Yeah, was there another one back here? Okay. Power, career. I mean, you think about it, you can make almost anything into, now, again, notice the way I'm saying this, can make it into a God in terms of your own outlook towards it, right? The way you perceive that thing. And unfortunately, we are all guilty, again, of breaking this commandment from time to time. I mean, which, what one of us can fear, love, and trust in God perfectly 24-7? Again, we break that commandment. We all do. Okay, so that's second use of the law. Third use of the law is, as a Christian, this is what God, this is God-pleasing behavior. When I fear, love, and trust Him in life. Okay? All right. So that's the first commandment, and um, when, I, when we talk about God, let me just point, as I did here, when we talk about God, we are talking about what's called the triune God, and we're going to get into this a little bit more when we do the Apostles' Creed, on the week that we do the Apostles' Creed. In fact, we'll get into quite a bit more probably at that point. But just to say at this point, that means three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yet one God. Now, don't worry if you can't understand that. Nobody can understand that. Every time we have three different people, they are exactly that. They're not one essence. They're three different uh, entities or beings, right? You think of triplets, for example? But with God, it's not so. Three different persons, yet one divine essence. Not three gods. One God, okay? And we'll talk a lot more about that, as I say, when we get into the creed. Uh, so I won't uh, go into much more detail on that, okay? Second commandment. Let's go to the, the single sheet. Again, second commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. So that's what God says in Exodus 20. What does this mean? Luther says, we should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceived by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. All right? So we've started the first commandment talking about God, the being of God. Now we're talking about his name. And the basic thing we would say here is that God's name is to be above every name, that we are not to use it carelessly, just to punctuate a sentence, for example, or needlessly when we do not have to do so. Um, and I say this, I know in saying this, I know that there are some people who, <clears throat> I'm really convinced, probably don't think about their speech, that they're doing this, that they're using God's name uh, needlessly. And it's just been such a part of their vocabulary that they just use it rather flippantly and carelessly, even in their, their normal conversation. But again, the name of God is to be above every other name. I don't use it carelessly. The good ways to use it, as it says here, Luther says, don't curse, swear, use witchcraft, lie, use satanic arts by his name, but call upon him in prayer, praise, and give thanks, right? So when we are actually addressing God, obviously, yes, we use his name. When we are teaching about God, yes, we use his name. We're talking about God at that point, not something else. Or uh, when we're uh, preaching uh, a sermon, obviously, we, we use the name of God. But those are the ways that is pleasing to God to have his name used. Not by cursing. Now, stop and think about this. There is a difference in uh, cursing. Cursing is to use God's name to wish or to call down evil on someone or something, right? That's cursing. 
Swearing is just using his name, again, needlessly to punctuate a sentence or, or whatever it might be. I won't say a lot here, but we also talk about, this is the, as you see, Luther's explanation even gets into the satanic arts here and attributing to uh, things that should be to God to uh, demons and, and other satanic uh, forces. Uh, I always caution people to just stay away from that stuff. It, it can be dangerous. And we do believe, uh, the Bible certainly believes in demon uh, possession. Uh, and Jesus cast out demons during his earthly ministry. I would just uh, stay, I always caution people, stay away from that stuff. Uh, you know, the, the Ouija board and the tarot cards and all that stuff that I know can seem kind of amusing and, and uh, uh, fun or whatever, uh, can be dangerous if you leave yourself open to that, okay? But again, the good use of God's name follows along God himself being the one true God. Let's go on to the third commandment, as I'm watching the clock here, unfortunately. Uh, and now we're talking about the Sabbath day. So the third commandment on the single sheet talks about remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. So we've talked about God, we've talked about his name, now we're talking about his word. And here it's, notice we do not despise preaching and his word. Well, how do we despise, how would a person despise God's preaching and his word? What's an obvious one? That on, on uh, the Sabbath day, what happens? Or what doesn't happen, I should say. Yeah, by not, yeah, that's a good point. By not putting yourself in the place where God's word is heard, taught, proclaimed, and so on. So that's despising it, right? How else? I, I come, I actually come to church, but eh, I'm not really paying attention here. Eh, I'm thinking about, thinking about the, uh, you know, Daytona 500 or something like that. And eh, it's, it's, hurry up, hurry up, pastor. We got to get home. Um, so that, uh, so uh, coming, uh, coming, not coming, coming and just not paying attention whatsoever. You could come and pay attention but not believe it, right? Not say, I, I, don't, I don't buy that. I don't buy that for one minute. Or you can come and listen. You can believe it. But when you go home and it's time to put it in, in, in action in your life, I don't think so. I'm going to stay the way I was. So... True or false, you can violate, you can break the third commandment even when you come to church. Yeah, that's a true statement, right? Depending on what happens. I, I, I really think there's, if there's one point about this commandment I wanted to make, it's that when you look in our hymnal, in the front of our hymnal, you will see there are a bunch of different orders of worship or orders of service. Five of them are called divine service. Divine service, first setting, second setting, third setting, fourth setting, fifth setting. Divine service. That's God serving. That is not primarily we serving God. It is God serving us. That's a big difference, and I think a lot of people understand worship. I think a lot of people understand worship that I'm going to come here to church today and I'm going to, but in so doing, I'm doing something for God. I'm doing something for God. I'm going to, I'm going to tick off a box and, and it's going to be for God. No, that's not the way we look at it. It's primarily God blessing you through his word and his sacraments. Okay? That's why we're concerned if people miss worship for long periods of time. It's not that we're taking some kind of attendance for heaven. It's that they, they're not putting themselves in the place where God can bless them through his word and his sacraments. That is a distinct, well, not distinctly, but it's a very Lutheran understanding of worship. That we are here, God brings us to his house so that he can fill us full of his gifts of word and sacrament. Not that we're here to do something for God, okay? So maybe if there's nothing else, try to remember that about this day, right? Uh, that we 
gladly hear and learn the word of God because it's through that that he works in and through us. The Old Testament, the Sabbath day, or the day God rested from creation and established the Sabbath day was Saturday, the seventh day. The Christians changed the Sabbath day to, obviously, <laughs> Sunday, yeah. Because, why? Because that's the day on which, what, Christ rose from the dead. That's the reason. Uh, the seminal, the, the very heart and core of our faith is that Christ is alive, that he is not in the tomb. And Christians changed the day of their worship to recognize that fact. Okay? Now, can you worship on other days of the week? Sure. We have a Saturday service here at 5 o'clock every Saturday. Uh, we get into Advent and Lent. We've got midweek services. So it's not that it's not that it's wrong to worship God on any other days. Any time is perfectly pleasing time to worship God. But just stop and think about this: if God had not established a Sabbath day, if He had not set that day apart to be holy and for His use in our relationship with Him, just think if we were working seven days a week and there were no break whatsoever, how likely would we be? to have any uh, involvement or investment in our relationship with God and vice versa. Probably pretty dismal, right? Pretty dismal. Just look at it the way it is now, right? Even with a Sabbath day. So this is a real blessing that God has built right into his creation. And it's with his people in mind that he has designed this for us. It's not just, when it says remember the Sabbath day, it doesn't mean... I wake up on Sunday morning and say, oh, I remember it's Sunday today. It's, you know, we act on that. We put ourselves in the place where God can bless us. And that's, that's what we do. All right? All right, I'm moving on. Let's go to the second table of law, commandment four. Who are the first people now who are other people that God mentions? Our parents. Let's take a look. Fourth commandment, back on the single sheet. Honor your father and your mother. What does this mean? That's... Here comes Luther. We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but it should signal something to us that when God is moving now from the first table to the second table, when he's moving to talking about our relationship with him, to talking about our relationship with other people, first people, our parents, right? And just stop for a moment. We won't go through it on the sheet. Stop for a moment and think about what God did for you in and through your parents. God performed through your parents the miracle, really, of giving you the gift of life, first of all, right? The gift of physical life to bring you into this world. Then think about the way God, through your parents, continued to provide physically for you. Have you ever thought about that before? That was God working through the instruments of your parents to provide for you physically with things like food and clothing and shelter and protection and all those things that they did for us as we grew up. Think of the way God, at least the design is anyway, that God works through your parents spiritually to bless you, right? Bringing you to that baptismal font making sure that that faith is, is uh, strengthened, is nurtured as you grow. You know, I hope you were uh, blessed with parents like that in your life, and I know I certainly was. But that's how important parents are in God's entire design, that, he provide, that they provide for us in so many ways. It's actually God providing for us through them. Uh, there's one question I always like to ask our junior confirmands. Is there any point in life where those roles can reverse and you end up providing physically and spiritually for your parents? Yeah, it does, or it can, anyway, uh, as they get older, right? And, and you end up then, as the child, you are honoring your father and your mother in a very different way at that point. You're now honoring them by providing maybe some of the things that they used to provide for you when you were, you know, about that tall. And so it's a wonderful uh, plan that God has in families and in his design. All right? All right, so fifth commandment, uh, 
protects the gift of life. Let's take a look on the, on the single sheet. Uh, we should not murder. Notice there, that's the intentional taking of a life. Okay. Uh, what does this mean, Luther? We should fear and love God so that we... Now, notice what Luther says here. We do not hurt nor harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support them in every physical need. Notice Luther doesn't actually say kill or take. He even goes down to hurting or harming. So I should uh, not hurt nor harm my neighbor, but help and befriend him in every bodily or every physical need. And again, I wish we had more time in this, but we would also, I want to just make very clear here, we as a church believe that life begins at conception and that life is a gift from God and that life should be protected from conception to natural death and that nothing should be done in between there to take a life. Okay? And again, I wish we had more time to talk about this because there are a lot of different side trips to take on this. But it's not just abortion, although we just had Sanctity of Life Sunday about three or four weeks ago here. It's also the other end of the spectrum, too, that we're concerned about where people, you know, certain viability scales are drawn up and, gee, if you don't meet those... You know, you go right ahead, you can take your life, or somebody can take your life for you uh, legally in certain states, certainly in certain countries now uh, in Europe. And we see again that all life is a gift from God and should not be in any way uh, taken from someone. Okay? And I know it, gets, it can get a little, at the end of life, things can, it, it can get a little complicated there. But certainly denying someone uh, nutrition... Uh, denying someone hydration, uh, we would say those are just not extraordinary means at all. And uh, anyway, uh, wish I had more time to talk about that. But we, when we talk about life here, and this commandment protects life, and that's, that's why God gave it. Okay? Sixth commandment protects our marriages, and thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, back on the single sheet, uh, what does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we may lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Okay? Notice there that Luther doesn't say anything negative in this explanation. This is one of his explanations that is all positive. So we lead a sexually pure and decent life. And boy, this is one where when we in junior confirmation, we spent a lot of time talking about this because there are a whole lot of ways out there, unfortunately today, to not lead a sexually pure and decent life. And that even involves what comes across a computer screen, uh, it involves you know, just so many different uh, aspects that I think years ago were not at least as easily accessible uh, as they are for young people today, a real challenge. Um, and the whole area of sexuality, um, you know, we would say that uh, God instituted marriage, as I've got down there in, in Genesis, you read it in 2 verse uh, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So again, we would say God's plan for marriage is exactly what he set up in the garden, one man, one woman, for life here on this earth. Okay? And we talk about all the, uh, all the other aspects of violating that, but again, the idea is leading a sexually pure and chaste life, which is, again, very challenging in this world. Seventh command, real quickly, not steal. This deals with our neighbor's possessions, fear and love God that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in a dishonest way but help him to approve and protect his possessions and income. I've got down there uh, on the staple sheet the different ways you can actually, I bet, I bet if we were asked people on Sunday, how many of you have committed, uh, violated this, the seventh commandment? Oh, it might be a couple of hands go up, I suppose. But think of the ways you can, you know, robbery is just outright... You know, I'm coming and stealing something by force. Theft, more by stealth, right? You know, thief doesn't call up and say, hey, I'm coming over at 2 in the morning. 
um, and, uh, you know, leave your garage door open. Uh, fraud, advertising something as something it is not, that's stealing. You know, in the old days, before electronic speedometers, you used to be able to roll back the odometer on a car, right? And uh, the car maybe had 60,000 miles on it, and you sell it for one that's got 20,000 on it and charge a 20,000-mile price for it. You're stealing from that person, aren't you? Or uh, think of the laziness on a job, employees stealing from their employers, or employers not paying employees what they should. So stealing goes, there's many facets uh, to, again, taking what rightfully belongs to our neighbor. The Eighth Commandment deals with bearing false witness, and this deals with our neighbor's reputation. And wow, we spend a lot of time talking about this usually as well. You know, when you think of the gossip that goes on, especially people passing information when they're not really sure it's true. And even if it is true, is it really helpful to somebody to be saying these things? And so that deals with our neighbor's reputation. And then finally, the Ninth and Tenth Commandments deal with something called coveting. And coveting is the passionate desire to have something. Now, is it wrong to have a passionate desire to have a car like my neighbor's car, similar to my neighbor's car? No, we'd say that's fine. But if I say I want my neighbor's car, that's a little different, right? Or is it wrong to say, boy, I would love to find a uh, husband like my neighbor's husband. Ain't wrong with that. No, as long as we got the word like in there. But if, if, if it crosses over into, I have a fervent desire for my neighbor's husband, and I think we can all see where that can lead to sins, further sins down the line, right? So coveting can be a dangerous thing. And that's what, when you stop and think about it, God has assigned either possessions or uh, these things to people in life and if we're coveting them, we're all, in effect, saying to God, I don't think you did it right. I think, and again, who's, who's first? Uh, I'm putting myself first. Thank you. Okay? All right. That was, I got to apologize for how fast we had to move through those. I love to discuss these things, as maybe you can tell. And I wish we had more time, because on the Sixth Commandment, the Eighth Commandment, uh, Seventh Commandment, too, for that matter, we could spend a whole hour just on those in and of themselves. But, or KFUO gets mad at me, we better close. So, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. All right, thanks very much.